Welcome to the debut episode of Nothing to Eat. I'm uh, Logan Kahl, chef owner of Planted Cuisine. And the idea for this show, this podcast, is an opportunity to uh, engage with all walks of life, all home cooks from around the world. That's the idea of going live and being able to call in. That number is 231-994-3803. I'm gonna have some fun repeating that throughout the evening. Um, so I just wanna do a quick introduction, introduction to our guest host, Sam Brickman as well. And then we'll start taking calls if and when and how they come in. Uh, but the idea is to uh, be supportive of the home cook. Uh, Planted Cuisine's education platform is really based on the idea of making cooking at home more easy, fun, engaging, etc., etc., etc. So this show is really inspired by the classic NPR Car Talk with the Cook and Clack Brothers. I grew up with that show and I loved it. I loved how much they made uh, talking about cars fun, even though I didn't even care about cars. And so that's kind of the inspiration for this show is to make food and talking about food and cooking fun, knowing that everybody messes up. Everybody has different levels of knowledge in the kitchen and maybe potentially uh, between the two of us helping you fill some of those knowledge gaps. So anyways, without further ado, we're going to introduce our guest host for, for tonight, uh, for the debut episode, Sam Brickman, uh, the owner of Bubby's Bagels, a really good friend of mine. Um, ever since I really moved to Travers, I think it's probably been about three years or so. Yeah, just about. Yeah, uh, back when you're at Fusini's, uh-huh. probably behind. Shout out Fusini's. Um, so, uh, Sam, just a, a brief kind of overview of your culinary journey that led you to to Bubby's. Yeah, so I. Uh, I'm originally from the Detroit area. I went to U of M after I graduated, went to culinary school in Colorado, worked in Denver for a little while, Detroit in some kitchens, uh, and then moved up to Traverse City where I worked at Fustini's for a little while, and then opened up Bubby's in February of this year, just before COVID struck. Uh, and it's been kind of a crazy wild ride of a year. Uh, but it's been a blast, and I'm super happy to be here and helping out with this. Absolutely. And shout out to Sam for being an outstanding community member, especially within the service industry. Uh, I know that ever since you've had the Bubby space, just being super supportive. As you, I know you also had support as well from the industry community here, but it's really cool here in Traverse that we have such a supportive community of, of one another in the small businesses. Totally, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I love about this area and uh, the food community is that it is very inclusive and supportive. Um, so it's been it's been great for me to for the support, and then I kind of like to pass it along to people like you as well. Sweet, sweet. And then, so we just had to touch on the bagels real briefly before we encourage people to call in. And just in case you want to call in, you're ready to call in, but don't have the number yet, 231-994-3803. I've never had as good of a bagel as the bagels you're producing. Um, And I could explain the process, the four-day process that it takes to make one of your high-quality bagels. But just briefly walk us through what makes uh, Bobby's Bagels so special. Uh, well, there's a lot of things. I think the biggest part of it is just that we do things kind of the slow way. We don't rush anything. We use a natural sourdough starter to start the bagels. It takes, you know, five days really from start to finish from when we have our 
sourdough starter fed to the pre-ferments that sit for eight hours and then go in the cooler for another 12 hours and then those get made into the bagels and those sit for like 36 hours in the cooler and then finally get brought out and then we boil them and bake them on burlap boards the old school way. So there's a lot of labor involved, a lot of time, uh, a lot of frustration, <laughs> but it's it proves to, to make a pretty good bagel. Alright, I like I love that. We can pick up on that uh, frustration aspect um, right now if you if you don't mind. So Again, the idea of, of inviting folks to call in um, is any and all kitchen-related questions. Uh, if it's simply an issue that you're coming up against in the, in the kitchen, that's great. Um, we all make mistakes in the kitchen. Uh, I think really the ability to, to create really delicious food, whether you're in a restaurant or in a kitchen, uh, trial and error is, is, is part of it. I, I think it really in any industry, profession. Um, so one of the, I think the questions I need to ask any any guest host that comes on is to, to t just highlight a mo an incident, an accident, something that went wrong uh, in the kitchen, whether it was professionally or at home. Uh, well, it happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, especially the bagel shop right now, the kind of touching on the frustrations and, and some of the things where uh, you kind of have to just keep learning and keep experimenting. And I, that's what I try and instill with home cooks is you see a recipe, try it out, you know, the way that it's written the first time, but then take it apart the second time, try different things, try different amounts of ingredients, try subbing out ingredients, really experiment and play. Uh, and you kind of learn from each experience. The problem with that at Bubby's is that because the bagels take so long to make, when we make an adjustment on something, we don't see the results of that adjustment until like three days later. And then we've already made bagels for two days from then. So by the time we're making an adjustment on something, we're already like a week out from the time that we knew that we had to adjust it. So that's one of the things that we deal with at the shop. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's always going to be different factors, especially for a home cook with different ingredients and availability and, um, it's fun to just be able to, to play with recipes and play with food a bit and experiment and, and fail and learn from those failures. Absolutely. Is everybody on Facebook and Instagram, is, is anybody complaining about not being able to hear? I just realized that. So I'm like, okay, cool. Awesome. Um, so we're going to start encouraging anybody who wants to to call in. 231-994-3803 uh, is the number. And... Hopefully, if all of our technology works, it'll come right through my computer, which is set up with the speakers so that we can hear, you all can hear. Um, if you already in a plan on calling in, just make sure you're not also near the actual recording for that echo effect. Uh, that could be interesting. So hopefully, our technology uh, works that if you want to call in, it'll start popping up for us. Um, our fantastic uh, producer, Taylor Kramer of Cold Shower Media, uh, walked in with a question of his own. Um, so we're just going to start off that one as we give some uh, folks the time to call in, which is uh, the, a classic question that I think we both have heard over and over and over again. I certainly get it all the time when I do dinners. Um, there are always, people are like, oh, you did something with beets, and like I liked it for the first time ever. So uh, Taylor's question was what to do with beets, because he had a CSA share last summer that they got a lot of beets and just didn't know what to do with them. What's a favorite favorite preparation method for you? Uh, honestly, borscht. 
I love borscht and uh, beet soup. I like to just kind of cube up the beets and cook them in some kind of stock. I'll typically, I like beef borscht. Umi's here to come play. Um, but beet soup, I mean, it's delicious. It's super earthy. Add a bunch of garlic and onions, um, some herbs, oregano, thyme, things like that. Um, sometimes I'll add sauerkraut in there as well. Get some acidity, a little bit of sour cream. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a big fan of beets and a big fan of borscht. Do you find that people who, uh, like if you've prepared that, like if somebody, have you ever given, prepared that for somebody who doesn't like beets and they try that and actually like it? Cause I feel like that's a soup that is pretty beet forward. Like it is. Yeah. So I, one of the first times I did that soup was at uh, soup and bread at the little fleet. Oh, cool. And, uh, there were definitely a fair share of people who were very timid or nervous to try and, uh, to try the soup and, and I definitely converted some people. So it was cool to see. And it's, it's always fun to get people to try something that they're not sure about and get them to like it. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and I would say too, like I, roasting beets is like a very simple way of going about it. But one of the things I like about roasting beets is then you can incorporate it into many other things that you can throw on top of a salad or, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I put it in everything. I, I like roasting whole beets and then like slicing it. I'll put them on everything. But like, we're probably terrible people to ask about beets because we like them so much that we'll just eat them. I mean, if I get them off, I get them like from CSA or I, from one of our fantastic local farms. The sugar content's so high that I mean, I just munch on them raw. Um, but you can also grate them, incorporate them in with like. I mean, I've done like coleslaws where you're just adding beets, which is one of the cool things about beets is that they stain everything a beautiful shade. So whatever you're working with beet wise, it's saying to like add a very cool effect. Um, well, I think people are scared of it too. And I think that goes for a lot of root vegetables where it's just this big hunk of yeah. vegetable and you're not really sure how to cook it, how to prepare it, how to cut it, peel it, you know, what do you do? Um, but roasting it is, especially when they're a little bit smaller, it's a really easy way to cook them and they're very versatile after that point. So just tossing them in some oil, a little bit of salt and pepper, throwing them on a sheet pan in like a 400 degree oven, uh, for like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, but. All right, we're going to, we're going to cut you off to take this call, yeah. see what's up, see if this works. Welcome into Nothing Eat. Can you hear us? Awesome. Uh, well, let's let's see. We'll, we'll kick things off with a couple of questions. What's your name and uh, favorite vegetable? Oh, okay. Well, this is Abby Kramer, and my favorite vegetable—I'd um, have to say the carrot. Oh, nice. Awesome. And what's your question? <laughs> and what's your question for uh, Sam and I? Um, so my question is: um, I've been making sourdough for. I guess since the pandemic started, and I've been using all-purpose white flour um, since the beginning, but um, it's starting to get a little bit flat. Like my um, my bread is starting to get a little bit flatter. I think as it's getting colder outside. Definitely. And I've heard that um, like wheat flour can tend to create a more vibrant um, starter and um, more crumbs. So I was wondering if that's something I could maybe switch to. Um, 
then start adding wheat flour into what I've been doing with the all-purpose or just totally switch over and start it with a new starter? Do you have any recommendations on that? Yeah, so the starter that we use at Bubby's is 25% whole wheat flour and then 75% of uh, King Arthur hard wheat flour. Um, so similar to like a white flour. Um, but yeah, adding a little bit of that whole wheat and the bran gives it a little bit more food. Um, it definitely will like that. So you don't really have to change too much other than the flour that you're using to feed it. You can incorporate it. Some people will do it like once a week, give it a full whole wheat feeding. Um, what we do is just make a mix, a big blend, and then throughout the week, you know, there's always a little bit of whole wheat in there. Okay, that's a, that's a good recommendation. So kind of make a mix of 25% and 75% and then just use that to feed from then on. Exactly, yeah, that's what we do. Okay. You totally okay. you totally called in with the perfect guess because it's, <laughs> it's like our regional <laughs> sourdough expert. So appreciate the call, Abby. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you later. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you're not going to get a better... I, I feel like... 70% of the population during like the, uh, this pandemic like started like sourdough uh, sourdough uh, home sourdough production. I, I was one of the very few who uh, didn't try to tackle that. But um, yeah, I actually had a lady who can't remember where she moved up here from, but she moved up maybe like probably six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, uh, and she came to Bubby's and wanted to get the bagels. And uh, did she ask for starter? Well, yeah, she came, she, she didn't realize, and then she, like, had the bagels, loved them, went on the website, was, like, researching all this, and found out that we use sourdough, so she came in, and the next time was, like, you know, my sourdough starter died when I left wherever, and, you know, I was wondering if I could have some, and we're like, of course. That is, yeah. oh, is that the first time it's ever been asked? I feel like that's a side hustle, like, yeah, right. like you could, like, start upcharging for, like, the Bobby's uh, sourdough. Uh, Narlock is its name. Narlock, that's uh -huh. right. I should know that. Feeling um, in Narlock. <laughs> that, that is that. That's fantastic. Uh, call in number once again two three one nine nine four three eight zero three. Also, just want to say if like we're on in the middle of taking a call, obviously better time to just wait until we're off the line with whoever we're on. I don't really know. We're using Google Voice, and I don't really know how they would handle multiple calls at once. Hopefully, that's a problem we'll <laughs> figure out at some point. You got a question over this? Okay, everybody, like, there's, okay, just shout out if, like, there's an actual, like, issue with, like, whatever tech that we're dealing with. Um, uh, I, I was going back to, I wanted to go back to uh, our conversation with the beets, so, is there, has there been a, like, because I think beets are a perfect example, but has there been a, like, a vegetable or any sort of food ingredient that, like, you originally didn't like? or like really had a distaste for until you figured out a way to like prepare it in a way that like you have to like, oh, that's really good. Um, or have you always liked everything? No, no, definitely <laughs> not. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind actually is probably seafood. Okay. Um, especially, you know, growing up in a Midwest state, we're not very close to right. seafood. Uh, and it's seafood's not always the easiest thing to cook. So you, there's plenty of places that you go to and it's not the freshest and it's something that I didn't like growing up but then you start traveling and I remember the first time uh, 
that I went to San Francisco and was eating sushi out the end, like, it's just a different experience. Sure. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of things that I didn't like growing up. But. Right. Yeah, I just feel like that's one of those things where there's so many foods out there, especially when it comes to standard American diets and cuisines at this point, that uh, people just don't like the flavor of from tasting at one time or just from understanding potentially the flavor profile without even having tried it. I mean, I've known people in my life who refuse to just eat a food at face value. And that's one of the things that I like about like different preparations for beets. It's just, I mean, it really comes down to how you prepare it and how you, what you're doing with it, as well as the sourcing. Sure. <laughs> Seafood in the Midwest is a great example of uh, the importance of sourcing. And uh, we're really fortunate to have um, so many of our incredible uh, farms here. And that's a common question that I get a lot is the CSA programs that kind of force your hand um, in terms of the vegetables that you get on a weekly basis. And I hear a lot of folks that just kind of end up composting or throwing certain ones away because they literally don't uh, know what to do with them. So uh, I didn't do that. Uh, number 231-994-3803. Again, the questions can be... Uh, food and or cooking related, whether it's a technique or uh, some, some like something you run into. Oh, did you have one? There you go. Uh, in the kitchen, uh, we'll, we'll keep the ability to call in uh, open for another 10 minutes. Well, it, at the very least, we converse. This is our very first debut episode. So uh, it's not like we're expecting our phone lines to be ringing off the hook, but we wanted to make sure all the tech is working um, and that people have the ability to call in because honestly I didn't really even know if that was going to be a thing uh, at the start of this evening so I'm actually really happy that in general <laughs> this setup is actually working uh, but the idea too um, just to, to detail it out a little bit more is, is that this will be live so it can be interactive and really like the idea of being able to hear the callers as they call in for folks tuning in and want to make it entertaining want to make it lively uh, but then also to take this recording and turn it into a podcast available on podcast platforms as well as publishing the full video that you're, if you are watching right now, onto YouTube as well. So there's various different ways um, to, uh, to, to interact with uh, Nothing to Eat in, in this platform. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I guess we can we can turn to Sam for for, for more uh, more content and questions right now. Sam, thing. Oh, best way to do a poached egg. Always a challenge for me, says the <laughs> typer. <laughs> Thanks, Taylor. Uh, in case the audio wasn't clear, best way to poach an egg. It's always a uh, uh, challenge for the. Uh, that would be an Instagram viewer. Uh, that's all you, Sam. Um. Well, there, I mean, there's a couple little tricks. I think the best thing is a little bit of vinegar in your poaching water. Um, that always helps. And then when I'm doing it, I'll kind of take a spoon, swirl the pot a little bit, get a little bit of like a whirlpool or tornado, uh, crack your egg. And then another good thing is to crack it into like a separate little bowl or something like that. Um, that way you have a much gentler kind of pour into your pot versus just trying to crack it right in. Um, but kind of gently pour it into that whirlpool, let it kind of spin around. And then what I'll do with my spoon is just kind of slowly continuing to 
turn it and let it kind of keep moving. The more that it moves around, the better that white will kind of encompass the yolk and then cook really nice. Um, and then also it just kind of at a bare, bare, bare simmer, like 180 degrees probably. Um, and then just, I don't know, four minutes or so, three, four minutes. Great. I was, I was actually, this like, question kind of jarred my memory because I was just uh, on two, oh, whatever. I was doing a, uh, I was doing a Meat Free Monday live video and I was working with chickpeas and somebody asked me about using baking soda when cooking chickpeas. Have you ever heard of this one? Yeah. What it does to chickpeas. I didn't even know what the premise was. Have you ever heard of this trick using? Is this something with the skins, right? Yeah, in terms of like making it more tender or something yeah. like that. Have you ever done this? No, I okay. haven't done it per se, but I've heard about it breaking down kind of the skins and. Interesting and like release because it's, I feel like some people like do the process of like actually taking the skins off of like every single chickpea. Right. So huh, okay, I just didn't know. I'd never heard of using. Is there other applications for baking soda in that way that you ever heard of? Um, not that I can think of. Yeah, there's all kind of like, I mean, that's one of, I mean, I feel like there's also just some of these basic things about like salting your water um, and, and just ways to uh, impart flavor or just enhance the cooking of whatever you're doing, blanching and actually using an ice bath, for instance, to kill heat. Like some of these things that like go a mile in, in the kitchen if you're able to do it, kind of like simple hacks or simple things that you might learn in a restaurant or sure. that I'm looking forward to imparting on uh, that wisdom when people call in and send us a call now. <laughs> um, but really, there are some really simple uh, tips and tricks out there in terms of uh, creating better or like restaurant uh, quality flavors in the home kitchen, which I think is really the main thing for folks like it, when trying to cook uh, in their own home kitchen is just like, they're expecting or hoping to recreate, you know, those flavors that we expect in a restaurant. And uh, I don't know what you tell, tell anybody who says that, but I usually say use more salt. I was just <laughs> going to say that. <laughs> use a lot more salt. Uh -huh. I also just feel like with the birth of, well, I mean, it's been a while, around for a while, but like with healthy food movements and stuff, there's kind of like this uh, crusade against salt, if you will, sure. uh, within cooking and being mindful of how much you use. So um, it is one of those things, though, too, that just like when you're blanching or cooking pasta, like salt's important. And it's right. not like it's going to absorb all of it or like that you're going to get so much salt. A uh, question from the audience. Uh, when making bread, is there a magic temperature and duration for letting the yeast sit? before adding flour and other ingredients? Um, I think it's a, well, usually when you're talking about blooming yeast like that, um, a lot of times it has to do with the, um, not the instant, but the dry active, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say usually you just put it in warm water until it kind of is frothy and you can see it working. That's the thing with a lot of what I love about bread and yeast is that you can literally see it working um, with bubbles, with air, with movement. Uh, it's a living thing. Um, so yeah, when it comes to blooming your yeast, just a little bit of sugar in the water can sometimes help too. It gives it a little bit of extra food. Um, but if it's instant yeast, you don't even have to do that. You can just throw it right in and that's 
what a lot of people use. We use sourdough, obviously, so it's a little bit different as well. Um, but yeah, just a couple minutes till it's nice and frothy. I think your number is is different. Wait, what? 2319943808 We do have another question from the audience. Uh, they're asking, what is something that you guys found difficult to work with and how did you overcome that? Oh cool. That's kind of what we were talking about a little bit with beets and maybe like those ingredients that were unappealing or whatnot. You got one off the top of your head. Okay, well, we'll get to that. We'll take the call since we have the, the line up and running. All right, welcome uh, on to Nothing to Eat. How about a name and uh, favorite vegetables? Kick things off. Uh, this is Becky, and my favorite vegetable is ice cream. Uh, and Becky, did you try calling it before and <laughs> the number was wrong? Yes, sir. I called 3803. <laughs> That's 100% my bad. What's the question you have for us? Well, I had a great uh, joke to start about. I needed help with my uh, 1986 Toyota Tercel, thinking that this was car talk, but it's kind of past the joke. So I was wondering, how at home can you roast vegetables and still get color like you do in like a convection oven in a restaurant? Um, the Is there best any way to get color or? Well, a lot of things to do with the color is going to be fat. So make sure that all of your vegetables, when you're roasting them, are covered in some kind of oil uh, or butter or ghee or whatever you have on hand. But that fat is what's going to allow uh, caramelization and then also high heat. That's another big thing. So I'll usually roast vegetables at about 400 degrees and then usually having all your vegetables spread out on the pan. Uh, steam, ah. steam is your worst enemy when it comes to roasting vegetables. So the farther apart they can be, the more that that steam can evaporate off quickly and you can start to caramelize, the better and darker you can get your vegetables to roast. Do you think I can trust the temperature of my home oven? What temperature gauge do you recommend for accurate temperature? Uh, best thing to do is get a thermometer probe that you can stick in there, and then you can tell the exact temperature at all times. Uh, I know mine runs about 25 degrees colder than I set it to, uh, yeah, that's, as that's a, the one in my business. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point, though, that oven temperatures are usually highly incorrect. And I was just saying to say, too, that, I mean, I... I Think it's somewhat obvious but just making sure that you're not cooking anything too long too i think a lot of when it comes to anything in the home kitchen it's there's a tendency to overcook which is in a lot the, the colors that you're going to lose color 
as well as obviously the great texture you might get from roasted vegetables. So I'm usually pulling like vegetables out when like there's almost a tiny bit of crunch left because they will still, especially if you're cooking at 400 plus, it'll still cook for just a couple minutes longer. So I like that. Like, Crisp tender, yeah. what we always used to call it. <laughs> Crisp tender is... How, how would you tell when the vegetable is done? How would you test it? Taste it. Throw it up against the wall, see if it sticks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, taste it. Uh, taste, 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 taste. What are you looking taste for? Taste everything. What are you looking for, though? Like, uh, uh, I mean, people like it. It's different textures. So when I'm cooking at home, I like to be able to bite through it with like just the slightest amount of resistance. I know some people like it a little bit less than that, where there's still a little bit more crispness to it. Uh, some people like it where you could just like mush it. Yeah. But to each their Grandma. own. Grandma wants it softer. Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying, say, probably the personal recommendation would be the, uh, the bit of crisp. Did I hear Ruben had a question in the background there? <laughs> <laughs> he got embarrassed. He got embarrassed. Maybe next time. Yeah, no, I know. That would have been fun. I, Umi hasn't really made his appearance. Uh, well, appreciate the, the call, uh, and uh, we'll definitely have to, to have you on as a guest host as well, uh, Becky. Oh, boy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, what was that question that was before? Something about a vegetable. Yeah, what is something you guys found difficult to work with, and how did you overcome that? I would, I would say one of the things for me that, and this is more personal taste, but like bitter foods, so like things like arugula, dandelions, or turnips, things that like, I kind, of, I would say like at face value aren't weren't necessarily appealing, or like my palate wasn't, like accustomed to mm -hmm. um but now like it's a big part of my cuisine and i appreciate that flavor profile um and i think a it just kind of takes a little while like you have to keep eating some of these foods like kimchi fermented foods are like that for me um but like introducing it and trying it um but it's one of those things that you just want to like uh say like with arugula like with a good spicy arugula not like the commercial stuff at this point but like from a local farm um salt <laughs> but like you know to, like with something that's like g more potent um you know with arugula or dandelion greens or whatever uh, if, if i need to have them raw if i need to saute them you know rubbing them down or or saute them with a little olive oil and salt to to break it down a little bit and um not make it doesn't create such an intense flavor and, and experience and then combining it with other things especially if you're new to, to something like that um it's kind of my go-to it's, it's incorporating them into other things um so that you get those those flavors or you or you or whatever that ingredient that we were talking about with beets you know where right. you can like put beets into like a coleslaw for instance and, and you're kind of starting to warm your palate up to those things it's like a slow burn kind of thing you have one trying to dig deep and get something interesting on this one. I don't know. I think something, not necessarily on the vegetable side, but, um, you know, when it comes to winter and one of the things I love doing in the winter is like braising and stewing mm -hmm. and stewing meats. Um, and I think one thing that a lot of people don't always do properly when they're braising or stewing is doing it you know, really taking your time with it and understanding that, like, this is going to be a process. This isn't going to be a quick, 
yep. thing. Um, and that's again, you know, our lives today are so constant stuff's going on. We're in a rush. Um, but when it comes to like slowing down in the winter, doing a, you know, a day off stew or something like that, um, and really taking a long time and then at low temperature, a lot of people don't realize that when you're boiling meat versus just like barely simmering it, you're making it so much tougher and you're tightening up all the, uh, the fibers in there rather than doing it really low and slow, letting all of the, the fats and the collagens kind of melt out and get nice and tender. Um, so taking your time with things like that. But in today's day and age, it's not always hard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and, that's, that, and that's kind of like part of that knowledge that gap, I think, that exists in home kitchens, right? Where it's like, when do you take like the slow roast approach versus like, like we were just because we were just talking about roasted vegetables or like higher heat faster type of thing so i think those are some of those those fundamental building blocks of like kind of that food education that can go a long way uh, and that's a good time to throw out the recommendation for this cookbook right here it's not a cookbook at all but salt fat acid heat is a great reference book in the kitchen um, in terms of talking more about like the chemistry, like the, the how different foods and salt and things like that react and like cooking processes, temperatures, like it breaks it down in, in kind of a uh, easy to digest way um, because it really is like, I, I think, you know, it's every ingredient you work with, there's different ways in which you can take, you know, approach how you cook or roast or things like that. Cracked pepper versus ground pepper. When should we be leaning towards one or the other? Or should we? Um, so cracked pepper, I'm assuming... Like fresh like cracked versus just like ground, probably? Fine, yeah. Oh, yeah, I see. Oh, I see. Versus okay. Course. Gotcha. Um, I mean, it depends on the dish that you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish. I would say, you know, if... If you want to really taste and like be able to bite down on a peppercorn and get kind of a more intense flavor out of it, then you'd use a more coarsely ground. Um, if you want something that's more going to like melt into the flavor profile and become something, you know, uh, a part of the dish versus like biting into a whole peppercorn, then you use uh, the finer. I mean, the, the first thing that comes into my mind is like steak au foie, which is steak with pepper where they literally just take you know barely crushed or sometimes they'll hit it with like a mallet or something just to break up peppercorns and then they'll pound it into a steak and then grill it like that um and the idea is that it's just covered in these like chunks of peppercorn and so you get a super intense mm -hmm. black pepper flavor um and there's definitely times where that's great and then there's also times where like if you're trying to make a sauce or something that you want some black pepper flavor. I mean, there's oftentimes in restaurants where we would make sauces uh, with a bunch of black pepper and then you strain all the black pepper out. So there's actually no peppercorn in there, but the flavor, you know, comes through right. in the sauce. So it just really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, definitely. Home cooks definitely going to take the, the straining their sauces. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I would, I, I mean, I would say definitely it is, it is one of those things about like, if you're fresh cracked pepper, I mean, you're, you're going to get that much more of that pepper flavor, like, especially like if, if, if it, as a finishing thing, that's why you, I think you typically see the, the restaurants where they offer it, right. you know, like it's right there, it's, it's 
Um, but I will say, uh, so I'm, I tend to lean on just cracking in the moment whenever I need it. And it's just like one of those things where I, I like things as fresh as possible. Um, and, and that flavor release when you're first cracking it, I really, I love it. And I love the flavor of, uh, cracked black pepper. I will say it brings up a hilarious story for me when I first moved here and I was working at the Goodwill and Kitchen, uh, which oversees the Meals on Wheels program. Uh, I was let, it was, it was let, the senior management let me know very quickly I couldn't use black pepper at all because there was many of our elderly uh, customer bases that would see it in a dish and assume it was a bug or of some sort in their food, uh, complain about there being bugs in their food and it became a whole thing um, after I used black pepper one time. So. Um, <laughs> that always cracks me up, but, uh, so if you have meals on wheels, you might not see any black pepper in your meals. But anyways, go ahead. Uh, question from the audience. I had a dish at a restaurant that included sunchoke. I haven't seen, and I haven't heard of it since. Any idea where to find them? Yeah, sunchokes, Jerusalem artichokes, um, I'm sure you can find, I mean, they're a fall crop, so they're I probably... I was saying, say, didn't Loma, I was... I swear, I think it was Loma that had them. For, I don't know if they were going to have them this year. It's such a specialty crop that they might... Although, they're like a weed, so you can grow them. That's a really good way <laughs> to have them every fall, and just be warned that if you do grow them, you will never, ever get rid of them. Uh, there's like a tumor that, yeah, goes in the ground and just spreads all over. You'll have beautiful sunflowers from them, but... Uh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Huh. It's a tuber. I don't think I knew that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't... I'm trying to think if I've seen them in any, like, stores here. I don't think Oriana would have them. I don't know if I've seen them at Oriana. Um, it is definitely tends to be more of a specialty item, for sure. I, I would say that I know one of our local farms. I typically sourcing from Lakeview, Providence, or Loma. I am, like, 90% sure it was Loma who had them on their produce list for a while either last year or the year before. Um, but I haven't seen it on a produce list. This is a specialty thing. It's just one of those things that I don't think there's a huge audience for at the moment. So unfortunately, it's just one of those things where when we talk about diversity in our <laughs> food system, we're, yeah. we still have a long way to go. Because it is a great... I, tasty. Yeah, it is. I, yeah, it's a great uh, ingredient. So um, if you have... You good there, Taylor? Cool. Uh, so I need to throw out that number, I guess, probably like one more time. We're already... Uh, 45 minutes in, uh, the correct number this time, uh, so I'm not going to look at that, uh, 231-994-3808, 231-994-3808, uh, I can call in right now, we can take a, take another question or two before we, uh, hop off for this debuted episode, but, uh, fun answering these questions, um, and, uh, talking to people, I'm so glad this is, uh, this is all working. I'm still kind of trying to think about that other question about um, the vegetable. I still like that one. I'm trying to think if there's other ones that I've worked with that I've really grown to love. Um, I would say here, especially if you live in northern Michigan, one of the staple crops now is like all the different radishes, and now there's more and more varieties of them, and I do think that's like a there's, and I think it'll be in a lot of CSA boxes just because like purple daikon radish, watermelon radish, uh, green radishes now we got. There's all different ones. And I think a lot of times the radish is something that 
can often be seen as like a salad thing or like a pretty right. limited. That's one of those things that you can roast um, that I love roasting. I love pickling them. I think they're excellent pickles, like same, like whether you shave them pretty thin and then pickle them or like keep them in more like stocks, like almost if you've ever like just munched on jicama, like a pickled radish like chunk is really good. Yeah, pickling, um, but also like braising, especially like again, Coming into winter, I guess that's where my mind's at right now. Uh, but I'll do a lot of like oil poaching or just putting them in soups, and uh, they're so delicious when they just pick up all that flavor too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, go ahead, Kevin. Uh, what is an easy plant-based meal that kids would like? Um, I mean, I feel like it's 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 almost too easy of an answer, but um you know obviously kids love mac and cheese and there really is two vegetables that i use to use as a base to launch off of that when we're talking about plant-based and that's both sweet potato and butternut i think both of them offer a fantastic base for like a mac and cheese cheesy sauce if you will um so boiling either one sweet potato or butternut until it's tender uh, like soft basically uh straining it and then putting it into a blender i usually use a combination of some sort of nut milk, like a oat or a coconut, um, nutritional yeast, of course, which you use that in your uh, vegan schmear at Bobby's. Uh, nutritional yeast is great because it has that nutty flavor profile. Um, and then, really, it's like some sort of nut milk, some nutritional yeast, um, salt, a little bit of acidity. So whether that's like a lemon juice or a little bit of vinegar, you just, I'm telling you, just a few splashes of that. It, totally transforms a sauce uh fresh crab uh black pepper will help in there as well uh it really comes down to uh your own flavor profile or potentially your kid's flavor profile in terms of like the amount of salt you just kind of want to keep kind of uh tweaking that aspect of the sauce if you want to make it really <laughs> like decadent and fatty and stuff you can also always um take something like a, a miyoko's or a kite hill cheese um spread or whatever they call it <laughs> There's all these names for vegan cheeses. But you take something like that and you throw it in the blender as well, and it's then going to be that much more rich and that much more of that cheesy uh, flavor. But so you take that sauce and then you just, you know, have cook-off pasta. What I'll do is I'll put it in, like, casserole dish or whatnot, pour that, like, mix that sauce in, and then bake it um, for, like, a – and it's always been a hit whenever I've done, like, some pride chefing or catering for families that have kids and – they always love like a butternut or sweet potato uh, mac and cheese. I don't know if you've got one. I don't know. I I always have a little bit of a hard time with that question or like questions about kids because mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't I don't have any kids per se, <laughs> but I feel like kids should. You know, if there's good food, it doesn't matter if it's an adult or a kid necessarily. Sure. Um, and it's like teach teach your kids to eat good. Food and not necessarily think of it as like kid food versus adult food um but yeah I mean I think roasted vegetables I remember growing up in like stir fry or taco night was always my favorite night and um I'll do tacos all the time with just like roasted vegetables roasted potatoes micro you make things with like the micro uh cilantro and what else were on the tacos on the food truck Oh, yeah, the, the different, different sauces. Yeah, yeah purple, uh, pickled purple cabbage. I do like your point, though. I mean, I think, you know, I was, I was talking earlier about 
how like bitter foods and like fermented foods took a while for me to like and it's like if you can introduce your kids like yeah. at birth <laughs> basically you know like as early as possible um and we even now have studies that talk about like while you're like what you eat during your pregnancy even has an impact on this in terms of your kid's palate but um yeah introducing kids to a wide range and i actually i do love that concept of it's not necessarily like kids food versus adult food and i think when you look at like picky eaters and stuff and like if everybody's eating the same thing and you're kind of like setting that expectation and i know that we're two like single guys (laughs) that have no kids (laughs) running our mouth right now but no really i do think it makes a difference and i do know that as a kid and like I was really privileged and fortunate to, like, grow up with, like, gardens and stuff and, like, working with fresh, like, fresh vegetables at a really young age. So, but, like, so I appreciated it and, like, actually craved some of those things. So, um, setting that, setting that stage is, is really cool. I'm trying to think of, um, some, something else, so... Yeah, I think tacos is fun. And you know, on the topic of tacos, making your own tortillas is a really fun activity for with kids. Like making a corn tortilla, like is super easy. Like it's really easy. You can get like a tortilla press online for probably... or a super heavy book. <laughs> That's what I used to use in college. Uh huh. Yep. So textbooks. yes, text the college textbook to you guys and lying around tortilla press because it yeah. It, and what you're you're saying is like you put like a little bit of ground dough, uh, parchment paper on either side, press it down, and then like just a hot griddle or cast iron or something like that, a little bit on each side, high heat, and all of a sudden you have your own uh, homemade tortillas. And it's one of those things I, I do know, having done cooking classes with kids and stuff, the more interactive and the more that's like why we want to get kids in gardens and farms, right? Like the more interactive and the more you can see it come together. Uh, the more likely kids are going to be willing to try and, like, actually, like, yeah. enjoy the food. So I do like those interactions. Sushi's another great one that you can do at home with kids. That's a big mess. <laughs> Get right back. Rice everywhere in your house, speaking from personal experience. But those interactive ones are a great ones. Definitely. Cool. Anything else, Taylor? All right. I think that's a great place. We've been going for about 15 minutes, and I, uh, not to try. Uh, all right, so we'll, we'll we'll close out the show. I feel like it's a good point to close out the show. Sam, do you have anything you would like to promote that's happening at Bubby's right now? Any specials? Anything going on right now? Um, well, currently we have we don't have it, but our friends Modern Bird Bakery are doing pie pre-sales for Thanksgiving. Okay. So a little shout out to them, uh, and then look forward to us doing some holiday. Uh, little special holiday menus, some things like latkes and knish and caviar and babka and all sorts of fun things. So uh, for Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's, we'll have some special things coming around the corner. Um, maybe potentially do a pumpkin cream cheese coming oh, up. Oh, yeah. It's been a minute since you had a specialty. We did the jalapeno, which was great, and people are still asking for it. Uh, <laughs> but we'll change it up and something else soon so love that yeah support bobby's like I said best bagels around uh and really something for everybody unless you can't do gluten then don't call and ask if there's a gluten-free bagel because everybody after you get off the phone is just gonna laugh it's, uh i'm sorry i'm sure there's people that are you know, can't do gluten but like for a good a really good bagel it's, it's worth they have wheat in them, so. <laughs> 
Anyways, uh, we're ready to end on supporting local in general, whether it's Bobby's, Modern Bird, Rills and Fern, Oriana, any of our local farms. Support local as much as possible. Everything's always going to taste better. Uh, shout out to our producer, as I just slammed the mic, Taylor Kramer, Cold Shower Media, uh, and he has a podcast of his own, the Cold Shower Podcast, uh, and he's also just fantastic at helping uh, folks get started with podcasts and this type of content, so that's super cool. Um, and the biggest thing to do if you enjoy this content, uh, really the best thing you can do for, for us is to share it. Uh, share this concept with friends, tell them it's going to be live every Wednesday, encourage uh, friends and family to call in and make this interactive and make this fun, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to keep this going. And again, there's a whole roster of uh, local guests and national guests that I'm looking forward to having on and sharing their expertise. So uh, I think that does it for the first debut episode of Nothing to Eat. Uh, thanks for tuning in to everybody for all the questions, and uh, we'll be right back at it live next Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern.